This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts. Let's see, who do I introduce first this week? Stephanie Butnick. Yes. She's hosting the National Jewish Book Awards tonight. By the time you're listening to this, she is a, uh, a former host of the National Jewish Book Awards. Yes. And joined- Which, uh, unlike the Oscars, have a host. <laughs> That's right, have a host and have books. And, uh, and also- Jews. And Jews. <laughs> We did. We never talked about what a surprisingly Jew-free year this year's. That's Oscar in my mo- opening monologue. Do not worry. Uh, Leo Leibowitz, you're also here today. I am also here today. <laughs> what the heck are you doing here, man? Hosting absolutely nothing. <laughs> Two Jews this week: Bernard Henri Lévy, the French intellectual, writer, documentary filmmaker, wearer of crisp white shirts, who has a new book out about America's role in the world order. And Christopher Knoxon, a former Jew of the Week and once again a Jew of the Week. It'll be his second time in the Jew chair. He's an author and illustrator who has a new illustrated history of the civil rights movement that's just out and belongs on your family's shelves. What's going on with you, Liel? I'm in mourning. I really am. Um, news of Luke Perry dying yesterday oh. hit me harder than, than I can even begin to tell you. You know, you share, I, you share the 90210 fascination. I do know. 90210, as, as I know, it was for you. Uh, was really like the seminal program of, you know, my youth. And it was shown on Israeli television um, at 5 p.m., I believe, on a Friday, which in of itself is like a very bizarre programming thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, just as Shabbat starts, let's welcome it in with Brandon and Brenda. <laughs> um, and I didn't have a VCR and we didn't have, you know, newfangled streaming anything. And so you had to rush to be home by like 4.58 p.m. on a Friday to watch the show, which I would not dare miss. And this one time, I'm 16 or maybe, you know, 15 and a half, something like this. And I run home and it's like 4.58. It's like two minutes ago. I'm like, perfect. And I, you know, rush the door, you know, open the door, get into my room. And on my pillow is an envelope from the Israel Defense Forces. And I know exactly what it is. It's the envelope that tells me which units the army is considering me to serve in, which is like the college admissions letter times like a million because it's like it's a college with like guns. It's like, what's the likelihood you'll you'll die? It's not like Hootie and the Blowfish College. It's like go to Lebanon College, right? So Which sorting hat? Where exactly. Are you Gryffindor you? or are you Golani? Right. So I like I, that you think of our college as Hootie at the Blowfish College. Is I in the nineties? I actually remember the moment in McClellan Hall when I first heard my roommate Matt Salamone put on, <laughs> on cracked rear view and heard Darius there you start have piping it out. So and and so I look at this and I look at the, at the little clock that is like four fifty nine and and here's the decision. <laughs> the decision is existential. You know who am I? Like am I? the person who lets life bring him down? Am I the person who succumbs to like the winds of time? Or am I the person who has principles and morals and sits the fuck down and watches Beverly Hills 90210 because priorities? Right. What do you think I did? Oh, I think you watched 90210. Definitely. There's no question. Oh, I 100% watched 90210. I'll just say, you know, while I never had a sort of army or 90210 moment, I remember when this show debuted my junior year in high school, and I I was an early adopter along with every girl in my class. (laughs) But the boys weren't on board yet, and I remember trying to get some of my my male friends. I remember trying to get like Heffernan and Pat Kelly and dudes like that to watch the show. Pat Kelly, varsity soccer times four, uh, to watch the show. And they were like, yeah, man, I don't know. Like, it's on what what network? Yeah. Fox? That's not even a real network. And and that was junior year. And flash forward, summer comes. We all go off. We do our thing. You know, summer romances, beach clubs, you know, sort of 90210-ish, but New England version. And um, we come back in the fall. And and Heffernan and Pat Kelly had both grown the Dylan McKay sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> and... and um, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't I didn't sort of proclaim victory. I didn't rub in it. But I was like, well, somebody fell in love. Because remember they did summer episodes over the, the summer. They actually ran a season, a That's short right. season in the summer because they were starting to pick up steam and they didn't want to lose their fans over the summer. And they figured they'd counter program against all the reruns. But that show meant tremendous amounts to me. I used to watch it with my college roommate, Doug McKay, not Dylan McKay, but Doug. 
And um, it's it's a loss. It's a huge loss, especially with the reunion uh, coming up this summer, where they're going to do a, a six episode little arc of series with uh, with with some of the other stars. So, Luke Perry. He's a it's it's news of of the Gentiles, but really it's news of of humanity. And um, from one of the greats to uh, to <laughs> to one of the lessers, we have a few booby prizes this week in news of the Jews. I'm going to run through these pretty quickly because I don't want to uh, sully our our listeners' ears with too much of them. Obviously, we know the news about Jewish Patriots owner Robert Kraft uh, caught in a uh, compromised uh, situation down in Florida. A human sex trafficking ring. Human trafficking ring. Yes. So. Yes. I mean, uh, allegedly. So- Allegedly. Allegedly, And yeah. he's not the trafficker. No. I mean, yeah. he's the yeah. guy who... It's like a little more serious than like a funny... Yes. Right. You know. I don't mean to make light of it at all. I, I always thought poorly of him and I think worse of him still. And um, But but the the only thing I feel like we as unorthodox have to add to this is he's the latest recipient of the stupid Genesis Prize. We which make has, fun of it every year. Which has also gone to who? Michael Bloomberg. Michael Douglas. All the Michaels. Right. All the very, very wealthy Michaels. Like, Bernie, Bernie Madoff. Yeah. If you're a super... Bill, Bill Cosby. No. no. <laughs> Basically, it's, Harvey it's, Weinstein. it's the award. No, no, no. Recipient. But it's the award that basically gives you a million dollars, and then you like, just like you put it to what you like a charity that you want. But it's like literally right. a. Award giving million dollars to a mil- to billionaires. billionaires so yeah. if, you're, if you're a billionaire non-observant Jew, you get the Genesis Prize. Famous, yeah. famous, right? Um, so anyway, Robert Kraft is the latest one to get it. And the, the funny thing, of course, is as we've pointed out before, that on their website and in their literature, they call it the Jewish Nobel, which is like. We actually have it. So, yeah, it's like, guys, we yeah. got one already. We got one already. And it's for like, we got a lot. It's for real accomplishment. Um, this was also the week that many Jewish congresspersons and humans got very mad at Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar, who uh, taught, referred to Jews implying that, uh, who on Twitter implied that Jews have allegiance to a foreign country, which was um, uh, what ta- country? tactless and undiplomatic. Belgium. Uh, Monaco, actually. Um, in England, students at Somerville College at Oxford are trying to ban kosher and halal meat because it's not stunned. And so they say it's inhumane. They say this has nothing to do with any animus toward Jews or Muslims. It just incidentally will make it impossible for, for them to eat anything. For them to eat anything. So, uh, so it's, you know, in many ways, not the best news of the Jews this week. But in some good news uh, of the Jews, uh, some of you saw the YouTube clip of the drumming Haredi bride. This is uh, the woman yeah, who- Yeah, that went around the internet. That went around the internet until she asked that the clip be taken down. And now I can't find it because for modesty reasons. Now I'm just seeing a, a clip art image of a set of drums. <laughs> so tell us what happened. So so basically uh, what happened is that at a wedding in B'nai Brock, an unnamed bride who is asked that her name not be circulated around the internet because this is apparently so shameful in ultra-Orthodox circles, went up to the band at the end of her wedding- uh, party and asked if she could bang on the drums for a little bit. And video was taken. This was at the Ahuzad Wagshel wedding hall in B'nai Brak, the very observant area of Jerusalem. And she uh, she banged on the drums for a little while, kind of like did a little air drumming and then... The, I was like, she did way more than the, air drumming. She, she, really, she really actually <laughs> is quite a good drummer. But then uh, the local Va'ad, Kashrus, you know, Shomrim, uh, you know, morality enforcers got mad and they wrote a letter to the catering hall saying, this is very shameful. We will ask that your kosher certification be revoked and that you be shamed before the the guardians of Yerushalayim and whatever, because how dare you let a woman actually like rock out on the drums? So this went all around uh, Orthodox news services. That's exactly how Ringo Starr got his start. <laughs> That's right. But we're here to say that whatever your name is, because your name's not being listed anywhere, we're with you. We invite you to come drum on Unorthodox. Someone in our Facebook group pointed out, this is like a very, 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 very religious community. This is not something that most religious Jews think is 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 acceptable. So this is like so she was sort of hedging against this idea that we're like oh religious Jews are weird, which I think this story does play into. Like a bride got up and they you know this this these crazy Orthodox people, but this was like a very 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 sliver of the Orthodox population. Right. Meaning her point is this is the most most yes. most 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 Orthodox. Don't but... use this to then categorize. Sure. Well, right, but. It does. It, it crystallizes something about them, which is, I mean, she's not singing, which we know is is forbidden, right? Singing in front of men. She's just like banging on the drums. It's like they're they're pretty uptight. It just crystallizes how uptight this sliver is. Like a girl can't bang on the drums at her own. But you wedding. know who is not uptight? Every, every every group is uptight about something. <laughs> That's true. Do you know who is not uptight? Who's that? The students at Newport Beach High School. Oh, who, so not uptight. <laughs> who are so chill. That at a party, um, there basically was a, a screenshot of a Snapchat or Instagram. I think it's a Snapchat of solo We're old, cups. We don't know the difference. It's, it's it's there's a difference. A Snapchat of a solo cup 
a solo cup like diorama of a of a swastika, basically. Like now, solo cups are those red cups that, that you people... drink beer out of, you play beer pong with. This is legitimately a swa- a massive swastika. I mean, it's like it's like twelve cups it's by like twelve cups. A Legoland swastika exactly. made out of solo cups. And the caption on the photo says German rage cage, which is bizarre. But what anyway, does that even mean? but the and in the photo, these kids have their like arms up in a Hitler salute. So all class. All class. So the, the big problem is this is the high school that the characters in the OC went to. And so they are like really sullying Seth Cohen's alma mater. And that deeply upsets me. Has Adam Brody come out with a statement to, decrying them? For He's this? like, actually, that's not a rage cage. So basically, um, a, you know, the school district president said something like, you know, we have a concern both for the physical health of students who are underage drinking as well as the mental health of our students or their friends who thought that this was an OK thing to do. They're now doing the thing where a high school gets like dragged in the national media. This is in the Washington Post and this is, you know, a California high school. So they're basically trying to figure out what the hell happened. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Did we not teach you that Nazis were bad? Um. But, you know, it's interesting because some of the commentary on this said, as you suggested, like, what's wrong with our schools that kids don't know? You know, this is a failure of the parents and education. And I mean, in other words, let's use this as a call for more Holocaust education in the schools. And I don't feel like that's the lesson. I feel like the lesson is that these kids are... Assholes. First, right. First of all, <laughs> I actually don't believe that they're all eliminationist, murderous, anti-Semites. I believe that probably none of them are. I believe that none of them are. Second of all, I think they might actually be getting what passes for a good education in America. I don't I think know I, that. I should hope so at Harbor High School. I mean, that's like a <laughs> right. really high... That's where, where you think the good schools are. I, I mean, I think that what it's... I don't know. I just don't draw lessons from this stuff. It's horrible. And I think, I, I think, I think people do... Stupid, horrible things, but I don't think I don't think lessons can be drawn from what a bunch of sixteen-year-olds who are drunk on bad beer at a party do. I completely agree. Although the thing that really kind of got to me about this story is like this is a bunch of like dude bros and like eyes out shirts, like playing beer pong with like red solo cups. It made me think, like, what if like you know how part of the reason why we hold the Nazis is such like other than their horrible deeds, but it's like, it's the Nazis, fist the German accents. Imagine the same exact thing with like, yo, bro, do you like totally believe in the superiority of the white race? That's literally the tiki torches, though. Yeah. That's the scary thing. That's it's like, no, no, but those this guys. Is, this is not like, like, incel, weird, like, white supremacists. This is like California bros. Uh, this, this will be like something else. It'll be like the bro lacoste. You know, these are people like hanging out, like, hey, man, like, should we like start camp and shit? Like it's so kind you find of like, it less worrisome actually because no, just... I find it just so pathetic and weird, and I'm totally there with you. It's just not. Again, we're not pro. Should need we say on this Orthodox podcast, we are not pro Nazi. The thing I... is, like, I also bet a lot of kids there are Jewish. Not in that picture necessarily. I bet that's probably, cool. probably in that picture. I bet some kids in that picture are Jewish. In fact, and they were just like, we don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. But it's funny. Sure. I think there's a way in Sick which we, we've separated Hitler and the Nazis from Jews. Like they just are this like. Like a German rage cage wasn't like anti-set. Like they weren't like fuck the Jews. They were like German. Like they were making fun. It's like there's a way in which you're like making fun of the Nazis. Not obviously not that that is an appropriate thing to do at all. Even if you were making fun of Nazis by doing it, but like they weren't. They're taking the the piece like the the symbolism of the Nazi party and then like sort of divorcing it. I imagine. I don't think those kids are like. Oh yeah, let's. The following the- students, which apologize for their actions, Seth Cohen, Michael Goldberg, like Zachary Levine. Exactly. No, I agree with you, Stefan. I see exactly what you're saying, which is there's a way in which now it's like we're mocking this weird bit of German history and not we're imitating people who kill Jews. Yeah. I totally agree with that. But I think the question is, what's the aftermath when they wake up the next morning and they play some Fortnite and they sober up and have and some. They vape. And, they and they check. V- they check the news. And they check the their news. Parents check the news. Are they mortified? And do they go to their friend Zachary Levine and Michael Cohen and say, dude. But here's the thing. I Sorry. think I think I disagree with you about education. I think that if they did like an I think that if they did it right, a really interesting thing about like how the Germans actually weren't just like funny fascists. They actually were like you you there's an angle of which <laughs> Germans, that isn't just showing just you the pictures fascists, right. of the Jews in the camps, like it isn't just showing you the the images that are sort of seared in your brain from the one intro course you had to take. That might be right. And that might be what, you know, the, the sort of Prince Harry problem is like when yeah. the Nazi uniform becomes like another funny thing you can do for Halloween, we stop thinking of it as imitating the people who killed who killed We Jews. think of it as imitating Prince Harry.
Our Jewish guest returning to see us for the second time is writer and illustrator Christopher Knoxon. His new book is called Good Trouble, Lessons from the Civil Rights Playbook, and it's an illustrated history of the civil rights movement. Chris, welcome back to the show. I am so glad to be here. Thank you for writing this book so you could come back to hang out with us. That's pretty much why I write them. <laughs> it's true. It it's gets just them an on excuse our to, get, to, yeah. get, to hang out with you guys. Because last time you were on the show was July 2016, which was quite literally a different world. It really was. Yeah, and, and a and, lot happened. And a lot happened that actually sparked the idea for this book, right? Totally. I was writing a book and had finished a manuscript about converting to Judaism called Prick, which <laughs> is book, on a shelf. Way. A book, by the way, we're still waiting yeah, for. Yeah, we know. I'm still waiting. I'm eager to do it. But I, and for. I gave it to my agent. I was like, all right, let's go out to you know to publishers and whatever. And then I was on a book tour for the novel, but yeah. not long after I was here. A novel that... I love. It's called Plus One. Yes. Um, one of the funniest, most charming novels. That's super right. sweet. I love Plus One. But you know, it's about householding men and breadwinning women and Los Angeles, and it's a sort of light comic, you know, sociology. And it's anyway, it's a, it's a family romp. novel. It's I a believe- family novel. And I was in Memphis on a book tour, and it was two days after the election of Trump, and I was kind of devastated and kind of freaked out, and like everybody, um, and I was supposed to go to Graceland. Because uh, it was Memphis, right? And that's what you do. That's what one does. But like, I woke up that morning and I was like, you know what? I really don't want to go like gawk at fabulous seventies interiors today. That didn't feel like the the move. And I heard there was a great civil rights museum there, so I took a lift downtown, and I got out of the car at the address, and I walked over, um, and there was no museum. It was like a old hotel. And I got closer and I was like, where am I? What's going on? And I saw a wreath hanging from like one of the banisters. And I was like, oh, shit, this is this is the spot. And I didn't realize that they had they built the museum inside the right. facade of the Lorraine. And I just the lost spot it. Where Martin Luther King was, was shot. Was, was, was yeah, assassinated. And I, I just lost it. I just I, I think I had one of those. I think all of us had moments in the days after that event where we sort of like faced the reality of it. Cur- and curled from, up and cried yeah, for a while. I, I yeah. curled up and cried on the streets of Memphis at 11 <laughs> o'clock on a Wednesday morning and then went inside. And that story, you know, it's it's it felt at that moment, like it had everything to say that I needed to hear, both sort of morally and tactically. Uh, and I spent like two weeks, I carry around a little journal and I wrote my last book longhand and I started drawing while I was writing my last book and I've been drawing a lot more. And so I just started drawing mugshots, the images of those faces of people that were, you know, uh, in the sit-ins and on the freedom rides, and because in the museum they have their mugshots, they have giant, right, of, of you know, activists being arrested. Correct, right. and they're young and old and black and white, and but there's this like clarity and resolve and sort of direction that I was like, I want that. The book, which is absolutely gorgeous, consists of lessons uh, from from the civil rights um, era and and how the people there achieved, uh, you know, the tremendous victories that they did. Uh, how, how did you distill those? How did you take this immense, complicated story and sort of choose the, what is it, 10 um, kind of lessons that you have in the book? Uh, I, you know, I just talked to people. I spent about um, six months holed up in Harlem at the Schoenberg Center, and I just read as much as I possibly could and just got sort of educated. And then I went down to the South and I, you know, talked to people who were in Selma and Montgomery and Birmingham and um, I managed to talk to John Lewis and to Andrew Young and to some of the leaders and then some of the foot soldiers. And I asked everyone that I talked to, like, what do you think worked and what didn't work and what can we apply today? And a lot of the sort of presumptions that we have about the movement that we learned in school are just utterly false. So give us a couple, like, what are some real misconceptions that I have to save my children from? Well, the first one is, is and I, I sort of fell victim to it while writing the book, which is like, you think of it as this Martin Luther King march from Montgomery to Memphis, 1955, around the Brown Act, till 68 when he's killed. And just the idea that there's this kind of narrative. And, you know, halfway through my research, when I was talking to people, I'd be like, so let's talk about 1955. And they're like, no, let's talk about 1614, when the first, you know, slave ships arrived in Jamestown. And let's talk about the Civil War. And let's talk about Black Lives Matter. And let's talk about like, so the the time frame of civil rights is a lot broader than we're commonly sort of pigeonhole it in. Um, and the idea that it's just this kind of secularized um, political movement, where when you talk to a lot of the people that were involved, it was a, it was a faith movement. This was, you know, it grew out of the black church. 
And it was mostly run by church women um, who were really leading the leaders. I mean, Martin Luther King was playing catch up for the ladies and the students. So it was women and students who were totally driving this thing. And the, the ministers who were sort of trying to scramble to keep up with their like activist popular uprising that was, you know, sort of brewing within their midst. So there's a lot of just sort of really uh, urgent, relevant information about how this thing worked. So the book talks about the way spirituality um, was such a big part, this undergirding part of the civil rights movement. Could you tell us what you mean when you say soul force? Yeah, I mean, that's the translation for this Hindu word, Sayagartha. But basically, it was, it's, it's Gandhi's um, idea of this kind of overriding, connecting, beloved community. And it animated the uh, Indian independence movement. And, you know, Bayard Rustin, who studied with um, Gandhi's people before going to Montgomery and basically educating Martin Luther King about nonviolence, taught him that. And, you know, Bayard Rustin, who was this Quaker, queer, lute-playing, conscientious objector who was older than almost everyone involved, um, got Martin Luther King to give away his guns and basically renounce violence and self-defense in that way. Um, and the, the overriding principle of this soul force was just like, we are all part of this interrelated web. And this is not a war. This is not us versus them. And this part of it just feels so important right now. Which You're is saying like, soul force beats space force any day. Any day. Yeah. Any day. So my favorite line in the book is casting matters. <laughs> and you're talking about the fact that, you know, ro there were people before Rosa Parks who had refused to give up their seats. And frankly, there were people who didn't want them out front because one of them was a 15 year old unwed mother and one of them had a criminal record and so forth and so on. And Rosa Parks was like a respectable middle class woman. She was kind of perfect from central casting. And you do say, like, regrettable as it is, casting matters. Yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable to think of like these. Um, godly social movements having these people behind the scenes going, okay, who's going to be the per best person? Like, <laughs> how is she going to photograph? Is she light skinned enough? These were things that were actually considered. Um, but it, you know, and also on the flip side, uh, I did learn that when they decided to go into Selma for the voter registration drive, they did that in part because they knew that there was this guy there, Jim Clark, who was a total hothead who was going to overreact and it was going to be the perfect right. foil. They cast him in that part. Knowing so, that they would all be... Knowing that he was going to come at them. Brutalized. They would be brutalized and that they would absorb those blows. And that part of it is, I mean... You know who knows this message really super fucking well? I would say that's Trump, mm. Right. I he mean, is, is, foils. Yeah. doesn't he work supremely well? Are you seeing so? And, and this is uh, my lead into to the bigger question. By now, these amazing lessons that that you recount in the book, they sort of go both ways, right? I mean, this is enough common knowledge in our culture to sort of play on all sides. I mean, if you're talking about something like casting, well, two could play that game. Is it time for a completely new paradigm of activism that actually doesn't draw from the civil rights? Is it possible that we're so enamored with that amazing, uplifting era that we're kind of missing the point of now and here? Maybe. I mean, I, I, but I definitely feel like there's so many lessons here that we've forgotten that could work. Right. If, and I think, you know, Trump may be looking at the civil rights playbook, but I don't really think he is. I think he's looking at George well, Wallace's playbook. But now that you've if illustrated you those, it, he might look at it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> exactly. This will end up on his bedside table. I'm always amazed at how well dressed the civil rights marchers are. They wanted to say in their in their, you know, proper ladies attire and in their coats and ties and jackets, they wanted to shame America by looking more American than thou. They were going to say we are we're the respectable ones. Is Sunday best. They're Sunday best. Mm -hmm. Do we need more Sunday best on the left? 100 percent. I bought myself a suit. Um, a really nice one that I got arrested in at the U.S. Capitol last summer uh, protesting the health care, um, <laughs> yeah, the dismantling of Obamacare. And I was like the best dressed guy among a bunch of like, in the you know, cell. hippies and stuff in Casting the cell. Casting matters. And I, no, I was like, voted best dressed in cell G. <laughs> no, I think that is so important. Me I really too. Do. Well, I mean, you're sitting here in a tie. And, I yeah, just think like, you no, know, nobody wants to, you know, don't be, don't make the left scruffy. Yeah. Don't make activism like smelly and wearing like hemp drug oh my rugs. God. And the, those those suits at that time were so freaking sharp. <sighs> so sharp. I mean, ridiculous. The shark skin, the thin oh lapels. It was <laughs> such a good look. You can't really say this now. I actually had written something about that and I was like, you know what? That just seems a little trivial. The little. civil rights fashion book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That'd be so great, wrong. man. 
<laughs> it's not though. It's like it's actually super. We're yeah. gonna publish it in tandem with the guide to uh, Hasidic sects, from, from according to their uh, yeah. strimals. Uh-huh. I've always thought the the Hasid teenagers. Look, oh, the coolest gorgeous I mean when you're a 13 year old kid and you're flopping you don't know what to do with your arms if you've got acne if you've got a fedora and a pretty good suit yep speaking solved. of 13 year old boys can we talk about your son Oscar's bar mitzvah Oh, why it was a Jews your own adventure party it was a Jews your own adventure <laughs> party how are we not going to talk about that uh, <laughs> all my kids had very very different kinds of services and he, he was being very uh, resistant towards you know choosing a theme not that he needed a theme but he, like the theme would be Judaism. And we talked about him getting up. and Yeah, exactly. We got a, a, him talking about getting up and sort of leading a service and talking to people in the audience about things that were important to them. And it sort of came out and grew out organically that he wanted to uh, have the service change according to what everybody wanted. And I was like, it's like a choose your own adventure book. And he was like, a Jews your own adventure. So I made, I got super nerdy and uh, went on Photoshop and made a uh, choose your own adventure cover with his face. And we had, and that was the whole, that was the whole. And so how did it, yeah, how did it go? What did people choose? There, we chose uh, the prayers, which ones we were going to do. There was one point where we decided if we wanted to do a reggae or a bluegrass version of one of the prayers. We had a band that was ready to do one or the other. Um, there were topics that we veered from and to. And literally, like, the audience got to Pulled, be, yeah. put their hands up and that then we amazing. just said. The congregants. And I remember they were L.A. That's yeah. that's how you yeah. roll out there. That's right. You've got the band that can, it can go bluegrass. It can go classic. What are we I have doing? to say all credit to this group called Storytelling, which does uh-huh. yeah, of these course. sort of tailor made. Amazing. Yeah, they yeah. do the lab shul. They do exactly. Lab shul high holidays. Yeah, yeah. 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 I love that. Todd shots, baby. <laughs> Look him up, <laughs> Chris Knoxon. I want to say I think you have soul force. Oh. Satyagraha. Satyagraha. We'll find the Hebrew translation as well. Yeah. And we are so grateful, as always, to see you. Thanks for having me. Where can we get your book? Where can we find out more about you? Oh, you should uh, get on my uh, Instagram, which is at NoxonPix, N-O-X-O-N-P-I-C-S. And uh, I have a website, ChristopherNoxon.com. And I will say that you should buy his book because all proceeds are being donated to the Center for Popular Democracy, a nonprofit advocacy group that is devoted to racial justice, healthcare, and poverty issues. So you're not even making money off this. Zero. Christopher Knoxon, author, illustrator, and mensch. Friend of the show. Second time Jew of the week, Christopher Knoxon. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our next guest is the French intellectual and swashbuckling documentary filmmaker Bernard-Henri Lévy, who periodically comes to the United States to hawk one of his several dozen books. And we are really privileged to have him in here to talk about his latest, which is called The Empire and the Five Kings, America's Abdication and the Fate of the World. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Happy to be here, too. Um, so your book, uh, which is terrific, the, the premise is sort of there in the subtitle, that America has abdicated its traditional leadership role in the world. And, and you uh, painstakingly intellectually explain uh, the sort of geopolitical essence of how this happened. But reading this book, I couldn't help but pick up almost a theological strand, that you weren't talking just about political moves. You're talking really also about this idea that Barack Obama and Donald Trump alike uh, had forgone this concept of American exceptionalism, of divine election. Why is that? You are right to say that it is, uh, on this regard, Obama and Trump alike. And by the way, I think that, if I may say, if you authorize me, one speak too much about Donald Trump in America. <laughs> it, it's, it's too much of, of the conversation. Even you're sick of it. I'm sick of it. Americans are sick of it. I'm sure that the people of the uh, listener of tablets who are here for us are sick of it. Absolutely. Donald Trump is an epiphenomenon of a much bigger phenomenon, uh, an undercurrent phenomenon, which is the withdrawal of America from uh, Europe, from the rest of the world, and from its own DNA, from its own essence. You're America, USA, were built on some values, on some principles, on a, a, a metaphysical project, which I identify in my book. And I think that the breach and even the break is with, met, is with this metaphysical project. And Trump, of course, he tweets like the last king of, uh, of uh, Roma, uh, Romulus Augustule, who was tweeting in proper sense. <laughs> when you read when the life of the 12 Caesars of Sueton, you see the Donald Trump of the time, Romulus Augustus, Romulus, the name of the founder of Rome, Augustulus, which is the little August. He was with his, uh, uh, he was with his chickens uh, tweeting. And this is what Sueton says, like Trump, the last king of Roma, and maybe, I hope not the last president of America, tweeting with his chicken, pat, 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 like this. We are in this stage. So as, as the latest in, in a long strand of, of French visitors who come here to help us make sense of ourselves, what happened to us? Why is this happening? And most importantly, what ought we to do to stop it? You stop, read Virgil. You, maybe not you, but us. the American people has stopped to read Virgil. The founding fathers of America were readers of Virgil. 19th century read Virgil. John Fitzgerald Kennedy read Virgil. Maybe not in Latin, but why Virgil? Because Virgil tells the story of um, uh, some good-willing people leaving a city in flames, which was at this time Troy, and rebuilding this city in a new ground, which, is at this, which was at this time Roma. The founding fathers of America had the belief that they were in the same position, leaving city in flames, which were Amsterdam, Paris, London, and so on, making a long journey by ship to a new ground, which... Take, took them not to Roma, but to uh, New England, and they built America. America was built on this project to resume Europe, to resume the West, to continue the Western adventure for the worst, but also and mostly for the best. America, America was constructed on this Virgilian idea that there was 
a continuous building of the West on the values of the West, which were tolerance, freedom, uh, uh, free spirit, and so on, and that each time it failed in Troy, then in Roma, it had to be rebuilt further. What happens in America is that this link of light, this link of life, this link of, of spirit between Europe and America, let's say it uh, concretely like this, is being broken nowadays. That's what I mean when I say that what happens, it's a metaphor, it's like a joke, but not completely, is that you stop reading Virgil. So this book is about America and how things are like not super great here. Also in France, right? Like we, it's it's hard to hear. Like things aren't so great in France either, right? In France, it is also terrible. We are honestly. This book uh, draws the map of the geopolitical world of today, of the historic situation where we are. We are the world anti-world: America, Europe, the West, and the rest, in a more than critical situation. To say it in one word, we are living the third big crisis of democracy, liberal values in Europe in a little more than one century. The first one was before World War One, first crisis, Dreyfus affair and so on. All the European people had the belief that democracy was dead. Second crisis, the 30s, 20s and the 30s of the 20th century. America first in the 30s. Uh, neutrality, and in France, okay, democracy is done. We loved it, but it is finished. You know how it ended? It ended with the biggest disaster in history. We are now facing the third crisis of democracy, of liberal values, and of European values. This is the stake. And my hope, my certitude, my certainty, but my, uh, my hope uh, is that the, the, the outcome is not the same, that we will be able this time to solve the crisis together, the West, with our partners and our friends, democratic friends out of the West, without reaching such a disaster as the two first times. Monsieur Lévy, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. It has been wonderful to have you here. Is there any anything... Um, and what's, so, what's the worst Americanized pronunciation of your name that you've heard? Oh, Bernie wo- Henry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie Henry Levi. Levi, I like that. <laughs> we shall not commit such uh, such sins. I co- I committed it myself okay. <laughs> Bernie, <laughs> because Bernie, of you. Bernie, thank you for being here. <laughs> and um, the book the book is the, the Empire, Empire and the Five Kings and the Five Kings now available in hardcover for your library. That was Les Trois Juifs, the three Jews sitting down with a, a fourth Jew, Le Quatrième Juif, Bernard-Henri Lévy, a few weeks ago at Argo Studios. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. We got lots and lots of feedback about the circumcision episode. If you haven't heard it yet, go back and listen to it. But enjoy these responses. Stephanie, what do you have for us? Um, this is a great one. Hello, unorthodox. When my son was circumcised last month, the moil used a special board to restrain him during the procedure. I noticed the label on the restraint board, letting me know it has a name. It is called a circumstraint. (laughs) Better mothers would be worried about someone cutting their son. Better Jews would be more into the importance of the occasion. I was just trying really, really, really hard not to laugh out loud. A circumstraint? Keep up the good work, Jenny Rothschild. Oh, my Lord. That's insane. If you have uh, made or marketed the circumstraint, please call us because uh, you're a troubled person and we want to talk to you. Liel, would you share with us a letter responding to the circumcision episode? Hello, Jew crew. I just finished listening to the circumcision episode. I'm disappointed that you didn't have anyone on the show to speak about alternatives to Brit Mila, i.e. Brit Shalom, that is practiced in some circles. I would have loved to learn more about this quote-unquote, unorthodox tradition, and maybe even a first-hand account of parents who chose this way to complete the covenant. Thank you, Ricky Ofek. Well, wouldn't be quite the covenant without the covenantial part, would it now? But still, I think 
we the the point of doing one circumcision episode is that then we can do another one where we <laughs> yeah yes. like I yeah, love I the idea that there are so yeah. many things we could only capture so much in what like a ninety minute episode. We should do another one that yeah. we would never listen to. Right. No, I think there's a room for next year. And people who have like people who've done alternatives, uh, you know, have put an orange on the uh, on the Sondic uh, palette or whatever, should write into us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and say you know for for the next circumcision episode, like we'll 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 go anywhere. Stephanie, what else do we have? Hi, thanks for an episode that was really cutting edge. There's one interesting tradition that no one mentioned, giving the kvader or kvader in honor to people who are trying to get pregnant. On that account, we are two for two. A good friend who had one child but who was thinking of building her family was the kvader in for our older son's bris. Her husband had signed our ketubah, but it took a few years until we had a role for her. Nine months later, they welcomed a baby boy. Before our second son's bris, I learned that another friend had been dealing with fertility problems for years. I asked her if she would be willing to accept this honor, knowing that it might be hard for her to tend, but explaining that it is a special role for someone trying to conceive. At that point, no medical or spiritual option was off the table for her and her husband. And lo and behold, nine months later, they also welcomed a baby boy. Yours, Jordana Schmeyer. So, so if you're I have not pregnant, heard of that. Here's yeah. what you do. You, you get a boy. An eight. This is like one of these great superstition things. You get an eight-day-old baby. You hold them down real tight. This is like our version of throwing the bouquet. That's yeah, I, the quadrant's person like carries the kid into the room, right? right. So, but that's amazing. Two for two. I think two that's for two. Really, so something. There we go. Amen. To the voicemail. Aloha to the unorthodox team. This is a fan of your podcast. I live on the Big Island of Hawaii, and I have no skin to borrow Stephanie's joke in the circumcision game. Would you guys please do a podcast on choosing not to have children? I would love that. I have known since the age of six that I did not want to procreate. My husband had the same feeling. And what I'm noticing is that our choice not to have a child is probably a bigger deal than my marrying a non-Jewish born and bred German. There's so many amazing things about this message, but the one thing that I love most is like the tropical birds in the background. Yes. <laughs> like, sure, we would do an episode about not having kids if we had the good sense of like moving to Hawaii and we'll living in paradise. We'll come to Hawaii, be the happiest we've ever been. No, I think I think it's a too, super interesting because think about all these these like mitzvahs that relate to, ch- to having children. And basically now that a lot of people are choosing not to have kids, are not, not able to have kids, like the world is, is totally different. And the, the realm of the breadth of Jewish experience looks so different than it did a generation or two ago. It's, it would be fascinating. You know, I think we should. We've obviously done, we've done an episode on infertility or people having difficulty having children, different paths to motherhood or parenthood. But this listener is asking about choosing not choosing to. Choosing not children. to. And I, I, so I had two reactions. One was Stephanie's reaction, which was, of course we should do that. It is, it's, it's a not uncommon experience and we want to reflect all of our listeners' experiences. Live from her home in Hawaii. In Hawaii, right. Uh, with the birds chirping, uh, the toucans in the background. I want to come clean about something though, which is. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's not my own experience that I no- nevertheless feel I can sort of relate to. So, for example, infertility. Like, thank God we've had a number of children, but we've also lost pregnancies, right? I feel like I've had a, a taste of it while nothing like what some people have, th- you know, thank God. Um, you know, wanting to have only one child. Yeah, I could see if we were stuck with just Rebecca, there'd be upsides to that. Uh, <laughs> wanting to make a lot of money instead of being a journalist. It's not my path, but yeah, I could see. what. There's many things that aren't my path, but I can see it. Not even wanting to have children. I have no ability to relate to that. I've always thought that having children is something I'd want. Can I tell you something? I, I simply can't. So that's why we need an episode. I, that, no. I am 100% there with you. I can't even fathom it. And that's no not connection. disrespecting. It's like. Okay. So, but there are. Yeah. Then it's, there's no, that's all the more reason. All to the more reason to have an episode. Examine something that you don't understand. I will learn something from that. And I'm excited. I'm excited to do it. Uh, to another voicemail. This is about the uh, circumcision episode, which I found fascinating and I wanted to report my own uh, case of circumcision by proxy. Being a hippie earth mother type back in the day, I was relieved to give birth at home to two girls. So luckily, I didn't have to ambivalate about what was to me the agonizing question of circumcision. My brother, on the other hand, experienced no such conflict. No son of mine is going to have a bigger schlong than I have, he exclaimed. He was, of course, a psychiatrist. At my nephew's bris, 
I experienced overwhelming empathy for the screaming infant. He was wailing while the cruel, spectating adults around him guffawed. I rushed out of there, off to the salon, where, in gender-crossing solidarity, I had my waist-length hair chopped off. Love to you all from your fan, Marcia Ian in Bellingham, Washington. Bye-bye. Shalom. Possibly the greatest voicemail we've ever received. Ever. Everything ever. about this is amazing. The only question I have is, have you told your nephew what you did for him? That you were rocking the waist-length hair, and in solidarity with his loss of foreskin, you got shorn. Listening to her, she probably did, like, at his wedding. I just think Jews are the best people except for all the other people. That's all I have to say about that. And finally, a last voicemail of the week. I just listened to the circumcision episode, and I have to say this really hit home with me. Um, I had a very similar uh, story to one of the women. I just had this sensation of panic where this child is perfect, he's God's creation, and who am I to do this to him? Why would I make him suffer like that? At the morning of the bris, I was panicked, I was nauseous, I was really freaking out, and my sister-in-law, who's, you know, modern Orthodox observant, just sort of took me by the shoulders and said, hey, you're doing this, this is happening, he's not Jewish unless you do this. That's just it, you know, that's the covenant. And I said, okay, fine, but this is totally barbaric, and I freaked out. But in the end, he was fine. After a week, I made my husband do all the changing of the diaper because I just couldn't handle it. And by the time my third child was born, who was also a son, it was really no big deal. I just want to say I like that creative solution to the panic, which is, okay, hubby, the diaper changes are on you for the first few weeks. And I am I think that that may have been the case with me. I don't really remember because those first few weeks with David are such a blur. But I feel like I did an enormous amount of the diaper it's in, changing. It's in the Bible. It's and in the Bible. Abraham changeth Isaac and <laughs> Isaac changeth Jacob. <laughs> if you have mail or voicemail for us, you can send your mail to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or you can VM us at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. Stephanie has a live event coming up. Tell us about it, Ms. Butnick. I host the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book series at the Jewish Museum. It's really fun. I sit down with authors, talk about their books. And the next event is March 28th. And you guys can be there. It's We're talking to Nathan Englander about his new book, Kaddish.com. We're talking to Rebecca Sofer, who's been on the show. She's the co-author of the book, Modern Loss, Candid Conversations About Grief, Beginner's Welcome. And the event is titled, What We Talk About When We Talk About Loss. And we'll be just talking about grief, mourning, Jewish rituals, and the way that fits into our modern world. You guys can find more information on the Jewish Museum website. It's free and you get admission to the museum um, included with your RSVP. So RSVP online at the Jewish Museum, and I hope to see you there. Mazel tovs. Uh, Leo, do you have a mazel tov? I do. What is it? My mazel tov is to an amazing brand I discovered this week. It's called Rebbe's Choice. It <laughs> is a brand of herring. Each herring is inspired by a different Hasidic master. First of all, the boxes come with little, very insightful, like surprisingly in-depth, insightful little shears or lessons about the Rebbe. Second of all, the herring is like the best herring I've ever had. I was eating it at the table, and my kids are like, ooh, herring, let us have a bite. And then they ate it, and like, oh my God, this is amazing. Who was we it named after this box. one? Uh, Lilo, the Rabbi of Lilov. It was with jalapenos and <laughs> capers. It's I can't amazing. even imagine a product more specifically marketed to you. To me. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, there's a Zusha-themed one, right? My favorite Hasidic master, which of is herring, herring in Zaatar. This is like uh, That actually sounds amazing, but someone created we it for need me. them to be advertising on the show. And, and catering. I, or we can just advertise for them on this show. <laughs> or, or catering every single recording with their delicious herring. I'm so with thank your, you guys. Hashtag I'm with Lillian Hudson, anti-herring. I'm using my mazel tov to make a little personnel announcement. We're really excited that Sarah Fredman Ader is joining our team as an associate producer. And we just really like her. She's been on the show. You heard her last week on the Circumcision episode. She's a friend of the show, a listener. And now she will be working with us. And we're really excited. Yay. And the flip side of that is that our beloved producer, Shira Talishkin, is moving on. She's going to still stay at Tablet and doing a bunch of other stuff. She works on the Parsha podcast, which you guys should be listening to. Um, we're so sad to lose her, but we're not really losing her because she'll still be around all the time. And we love her and we're just excited for her and, and just so thankful for her years of work on this show. Yeah. And 
transitions are, are bittersweet. We're so excited for Sara, but... We're very fortunate to have both of them. Yes, absolutely. And in, and in Sara's honor, we're all taking her maiden name as our middle name. We're all Fredmans now. That's right. You we're are all Ste- Fredmans. Stephanie Fredman Butnick, Liel Fredman Leibowitz, Mark Fredman Oppenheimer. I never liked my middle name much anyways. I'm happy to cashier Edward for Fredman, which actually seems like a kind of more chill Edward. Mark Fredman Oppenheimer. Mark Fredman I really Oppenheimer. wish I had a middle name. I know. Let's, let's, I, let's, we did let's, this let's, once, but I think we should really. This. What should be my middle give name? Give Liel a middle name. Actually, this is a great idea. It's March, which means it's March Madness. So I think our listeners should send in their ideas for Liel's middle name. We just need, what, like 16 to we start. We'll do a bracket? We'll do a bracket. We'll do a bracket. And then we'll do it, we'll do it like send on it. Instagram, on Facebook. You will be able to vote on the ones. And then by the end, it'll be, be between and Duke and whatever the other name is. By the name. And that you will choose for me. This yes, is how much is, I love you. This is amazing. Okay, so email our producer, Jay Cross. He is across the glass right now, excitedly saying that he'll put together a bracket. So jcross at tabletmag.com, subject line, Liel's middle name. And and you will call me by your name. <laughs> <laughs> middle Liel... name could be Timothée Chalamet <laughs> Libovitze. Army, Amer. Um, my mazel tov this week is uh, to my, my friend from synagogue, uh, Carol Koenig, who uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a thank you um, more than a mazel tov. Uh, her beloved husband, uh, Dr. Bob Oaks, beloved local pediatrician, died uh, a couple years ago, and she said to me recently, "Would you like his sweater vests?" Aww. And I said, "Why, yes, I would." And I, I had a I said, Is it, "Was he size medium?" And she said, "He, I think he was." And she invited me over to her house a couple blocks from where I live, and, and she she brought down these beautiful sweaters. Some were sweaters, full-length sweaters. Some were sweater vests. She said, you know, he lived in these. And I said, I know he did. I remember. He was a he was a sweater vest guy. And um, and she just put this pile down, and she said, take whichever ones you want. And a couple of them were kind of a dark red that I already have, and I didn't take those. But then I got a few, including this beautiful navy blue uh, Brooks Brothers uh, 42 chest sweater vest that I'm wearing. And it's just so meaningful to me. First of all, it's a lovely gesture. And second, I'm honored to be wearing uh, Bob Oaks's sweater vest. He was a, a, a giant of a man. And uh, he was a gentle giant. He was a giant of a man and a gentleman. And uh, and I miss him. And I'm just glad. I'm, I'm glad to be honored by his sweater vest. So, uh, so thank you. Dr. Oaks, your legacy lives on. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We come to you live from time to time to book us or advertise with our show. Email producer Josh Cross, that's cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. You should wear and carry unorthodox too. Friends or enemies need unorthodox swag. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in shirts, mugs, and onesies with our branding on them. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, and our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Jeffrey Serkman of Larchmont, New York. We come to you from Argo Studio. Studios, which uses eight braids to make a challah. Shalom, friends. (laughs) 